As you have perhaps heard by now, perhaps, that Steve and Wendy are sick this week. And uh, so as a result of that, I found out midday Friday that I was going to be preaching. And that's always a little shock to the system. But uh, the Lord is gracious. I was off on Friday and didn't have a lot of stuff that I had to accomplish. And um, so uh, it was either between George and I trading pulpits, but uh, Steve said, well, you could take an old sermon that you've preached at CVP and you could preach it at RPC in uh, Elk Grove. And I said, Steve, there's no sermon that I have that I've preached here that I haven't (laughs) preached at RPC. So um, that didn't help us. And uh, so we thought, okay, let's just, we'll do it this way. And uh, so I'm glad to be um, doing that today. So with slides and all this too, um, there is, it technically creates a little bit of a challenge too. And so hopefully I put the slides in the order for the scripture I want to read because we're going to go through a lot of scripture We've been doing that a lot lately, it seems like. But um, let me, um, before we, before, well, let's go ahead and do this. Let's go ahead and um, go to our first slide here um, and make sure that I am, let's stand together as we read. And go ahead and turn if you want, but I've got it up on the screen. Turn to Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 as we Read, uh, and as we stand in honor of God's word, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which, which he loved us, even, the, even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray now that you would take these words and these thoughts that are informed by your word as I try to communicate these truths, that you would take them and that you would help us to understand You would help us to apply. You would help us to think clearly and to be better even understanders of the work that you've done us and better communicators of what the gospel message, the role it plays and how you do such mighty works. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated. So I'm going to tell you with a little bit of background um, so when I got the word um, that I needed to preach, I was thinking through, well, what have I been kind of thinking through lately that um, we could deal with? And, and I had read some uh, stuff here and there. And in fact, I am really um, indebted to John Piper as he thought through some of these issues of the difference between Arminianism and, and Calvinism or Reformed or biblical, what I think is biblical theology, and it kind of came to bear with something that happened this, uh, this last unit that we did in battalion, which is our ministry, of course, with young men and fathers. And uh, so we were working with the young men in battalion 
about putting together um, their testimony and secondarily maybe about witnessing and sharing our faith. And, and we had each one of them develop a testimony of their faith and their story of how they came to be a Christian, how they came to follow Christ. And the language that was common to almost everybody, and we have several groups in battalion, but it was probably common, really common to everyone in my group, was something like this. And it, it was, um, I was brought up in a Christian home and I accepted Christ when I was 12, or whatever it might be. And so this idea of accepting Christ, which is a pretty common term, pretty well used term that we all use, right? So I've always thought, well, that's just an odd term. Where does that come from? But I've never really gone in and, and searched out what's, what does that mean and where did it come from. And I've, so I've thought, well, this is kind of odd. Let's look at that. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? But what does it mean to accept Christ? Oh, Christ, I don't know. Oh, I guess I'll accept you. And so it's just kind of got that feel to it. So I thought, well, that'd be interesting to talk about. We, we used to have a thing called Disciple Makers years ago that we did after our worship service, and before our meal, we had um, a teaching time, and it was kind of focused on the kids, but adults too, and we would sometimes go through catechisms, we would go through a lot of theology, and it was a great time. Uh, How many of you were there back when we did Disciple Makers? Okay, so you remember those times, and we did a lot of really good, solid teaching during that time that we were indebted to, I think, as far as understanding the Reformed faith. And so, I think um, this, so that Where does the terminology come from? Is it descriptive of what happens? Does it reflect a good theology? And is it biblical thinking? Is it a biblical term? And beyond that, does it potentially reflect wrong theology? So we're going to look at some passages, particularly from the New Testament, because we're looking ethnically as being covenant, part of the covenant in the Old Testament. But now we're talking about coming into the covenant as New Testament believers. And so what are the historical threads that might put this together? So I'm going to run us through some of the scriptures that are used for entering into a saving relationship with Christ. I don't, you don't need to look these up, and I'm not even going to put, have these up on these first ones. So the first one, you can guess probably what the first one is that describes being a follower of Christ. It's believe. It's used hundreds of times in scripture. And so a good example of that uh, is in Acts 16. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So that's an interesting one, believed. And another one that's in there, but it's actually the virtually the same word, which is the same Greek word, epistusen, it is trusted, and so sometimes it's, it's translated trusted. So in Ephesians 1.13, in him you also trusted, New King James, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you, having believed, that's the, that's the word there actually, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Another one, Acts 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So repentance is a separate thing, but faith towards God. So there's another term, Acts 2.37, 
Uh, another time, Peter is preaching. He says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about three. So it doesn't say there, believe. It doesn't say, you know, to, um, to receive. It doesn't say to accept, but he says, repent and be baptized. And it says they received the word. And then you, in First Peter, you have an example of faith and hope, which I think are part of all those. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in last times for the sake of, of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So, those are the terms. So, where do we get accept Christ? Well, I, I finally found it in an odd place. Colossians 2, 6, and 7. So if you were to look that up, in fact, I think I do have that one here. Look and see. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. And that's another term we use, isn't it? To receive Christ. You have received Christ as Lord. And it's one of the only places that that is used. So guess what in the... How many of you remember Ken Taylor's The Living Bible in 1971? How many of you had a living Bible? Only a few of you. So the Living Bible was really, in my youth group, they passed out the Living Word or whatever it was, the Living Bible. And it was a paraphrase, but it's the book that millions of people have had. And so in the Living Bible, it says, therefore, as you accepted Christ Jesus as Lord. That's the only translation in every translation out there that says accepted. All the rest say, as you believe. So where did the term accept Christ come from? My guess it came from maybe the Living Bible, or maybe in 1971 everybody was saying, I accepted Christ, and Ken Taylor said, well, let's, let's translate it that way as accept Christ, and, and makes more sense to people because that's what they're saying already. I don't know, it's the chicken and egg kind of thing, right? So I think, though, and we see clearly that, that, that accepting Christ is a mistranslation of the word para lambano, which means to take oneself, to join oneself, to associate, or to receive something transmitted. It never means accept. So I'm not making a case for, uh, if you're in this church, you better not say I accepted Christ. That's not my point. You can use any term you want. We know what you mean. But I think it's, it's, an, it's helpful to say, okay, what is that? What is it implied if I accept Christ versus receiving Christ? And so I want to propose that accept implies that we're the ones choosing our salvation and deciding upon salvation, that Christ is somehow knocking on the door 
That's another scripture that was used from Revelation that had nothing to do with accepting Christ or receiving Christ. Christ is knocking at the door and we're deciding to let him in or not. And he's pleading with us and the choice is us to us. And because there's a sense that it feels that way when we came to Christ, we conclude that that's reality. And and those descriptions are actually common in the vocabulary of the church today among Christians. And the danger, I think, is that it distorts a biblical understanding of what it means to come to faith and come to Christ. So we're going to talk briefly, and I'm, I'm going to try to make this concise because it gets a little theological stuff here. Um, there, are too many, there are two very different views around the church and how God's grace functions in bringing people to Christ from spiritual darkness and deadness and unbelief to life and faith and salvation. And if it helps, you can call one view Arminianism, not Armenianism, but Arminianism, because of its early, was they were followers of Jacob Arminius. And you can call the other view, the one that I'm going to argue for here, is Calvinism, because the foremost advocate of the opposite view, the view we're going to talk about, was John Calvin. And I think it's the most biblical view. So Arminium and Calvinism aren't important um, in comparison to what's really at stake, is one of them more biblical than another? And some of you have this down pat, and you're going, well, this is kind of old stuff, but I think for many of us that maybe are more recently a part of our body here, this may be kind of a new discussion to think through, um, although many of you are here because at some point you said, hey, I'm Reformed, you know, and, and here's why, and I'm looking for a church that's like that. Um, now, let me lay this out, and there's a lot of stuff that goes. The typical thing of Arminianism that we think of when we think Arminianism, we think, oh, they say that you can lose your salvation. And that is one of maybe the points of Arminianism. It's not the one we're going to talk about today. So both of, the views, both of these views agree that until the grace of God is active and powerful in the human heart, there's only deadness and rebellion and unbelief with no possibility of man bringing about the changes in his own heart that are necessary for salvation. They all agree with that, okay? But, and, and historic Arminianism agrees with Calvinism, agrees with Calvinism that fallen man, apart from special grace, cannot give himself life or produce his own faith. There's agreement on that. The difference lies in what this divine grace does to the human heart and how it relates to the will of man. Now, in Arminianism, they call it prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. And it's a phrase used by Arminian to describe the work of God's grace prior to faith, hence the word prevenient, which means coming before. And without this faith, it's impossible. And so here's what the Arminian theologians would say is their perspective of how one moves to faith. If anyone comes to Christ with repentance and faith, it's only because they are enabled by God's prevenient grace to do so. Secondly, Arminianism has always insisted the initiative in salvation is God, is God's. It is called prevenient grace, and it's enabling, but it's resistible. Okay, that's a key thing. It's enabling you, but you can resist this grace. And so Wesley, who we had a quote from, I think, in our 
somewhere in our liturgy there, affirmed original sin, including total depravity in the sense of spiritual helplessness, but he also affirmed God's universal gift of prevenient or enabling grace that restores restores freedom of the will. So he was saying that, yeah, I believe in total depravity, but God gives this prevenient grace to everybody, universal grace to everybody in the world that's born. He gives this grace, and that enables them then to have free will and choose. So that's where you get free will Baptists and all those. Um, Classical Arminian theology then attributes the sinner's ability to respond to the gospel with repentance and faith, and calls, and that's, re, that's prevenient grace. So I get prevenient grace, and now I'm left with this choice. Do I want to follow Christ or not? And I can either say no and walk away from it, even though I saw it clearly, or I can take part of that, and I can accept Christ. Maybe that's a good place to use that. So I think that's a a helpful distinction. Arminian says the ability to respond is given in prevenient grace. It's an ability to believe or not believe. So prevenient grace brings one out of bondage to the point that you can receive or reject the work of God in your heart. And so the way to think of that is that Arminian theology says a partial regeneration precedes conversion. So this partial thing, you're half-baked. But it is not a complete regeneration. It's an awakening and enabling, but it's not an irresistible force. So prevenient grace is God's powerful attracting and persuading power that imparts free will to be saved or not saved. Isn't that an interesting way? That's exactly what they believe. So you're getting this partial grace, this partial conversion, and at that point, then you can respond and you have the free will. It's you then. It's your, to your credit that you're making a good choice. Yay me, right? So that's kind of where you end up. So that's how accepting Christ reflects, accepting Christ reflects Arminian understanding because it forms the basis for implying that we somehow weigh the evidence, overcome spiritual blindness, and we make the right choice. Calvinism, on the other hand, says God's grace does just, doesn't just bring us to partial regeneration. Calvinism says God's grace doesn't stop there. It doesn't just leave the outcome of the conversion to our ultimate self-determination. Arminianism takes the understanding that man, not God, does the final and decisive act. So according to Arminianism, the very final act that brings me into Christ, that decisive moment in conversion is one that I perform. So as you look around at the different denominations, and we won't necessarily go and name names, but evangelicalism is probably still split down, and even though people don't realize maybe what I am, and you know they may be in a good Bible-believing Baptist church that is at least mostly Calvinistic, but they may be in a number of other... So I'm giving you an example that's off script here, but for years, and it's probably still true, um, Calvary Chapel was very anti-Calvinistic and would have, I mean, even in Modesto, they would have tracts in their foyer telling what's wrong with Calvinism. So you, could, you know kind of where they stood on these kinds of issues. 
So Calvin says, Calvin, Calvinism says that God does more in our conversion. Namely, he overcomes all of our resistance and opens the eyes of our hearts to make Christ so real, so beautiful, and so compelling that our will gladly embraces Christ as Savior and Lord and treasure. And that's what we call irresistible grace or, better yet, effectual calling. Those are kind of the technical terms, effectual calling, and that if you want to use uh, one of the parts of the acronym TULIT, irresistible grace. The I is irresistible grace. The question is, which of these biblical views of how God's grace brings us to foul, which, which of these is the biblical view? Does it make us free to choose grace or reject it? Or does it overcome our rebellion and blindness so that we are drawn to the beauty of Christ to embrace him? So as we look at this biblical aspect, I want to look through a few verses that will help us clarify this and see what scripture says about it. And let's go to this one passage um, that we already looked at uh, about Ephesians that talks about this. Um, Scripture shows, I think, that the complete saving effectiveness of God's grace and is with God and that God provides more than partial regeneration. So we're going to go back to our... Oops, that wasn't what I want to do. That was the button on my computer versus the one on this computer, and I didn't want to do that. Let me see if I can find out where I was in my text here. Okay. So let me see what no, that's the wrong one. Okay, there we go. Okay, so it starts out there. Um, God being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Now comes the two verbs here. The two verbs of what God being rich in mercy does. So number one, he made us alive together with Christ. And that's what he does for dead sinners. He makes us alive with Christ. Not just alive to reject Christ, but makes us alive with Christ. And then he adds this parenthetical phrase that's right in the middle there. He says, by grace you have been saved. And I think it's to realize what grace actually does. It makes us alive with Christ. And then the second verb there, and raises us up with him, So he made us alive together with Christ, and he raised us up, and so he brings us up alive out of the grave of our fallenness, and he raises us up with Christ. And so Paul continues, he says, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I do not think you can take that text and fairly interpret that to mean there's a split in regeneration, or a split in making us alive. It's not as if he does part of it and then he waits to see what we'll do with the rest of it. If we finish making the alive, making, if we, if we will finish the making alive and bring ourselves into union with Christ. I don't think that works. It doesn't fit this text. So the real difference, I think, on this aspect of Calvinism, Arminianism, is not that one believes in total depravity and the other doesn't, that's not it. The difference is not that one believes in, that grace must be, precede faith and the other doesn't. That's not it either. They both agree on those things. But we believe that the saving grace, that God's saving grace doesn't just restore 
a kind of free will that can accept or reject Christ, but rather opens blind eyes, grants us to see compelling truth and beauty and worth of Christ in such a way that we find him irresistible. And that's what it does. That's what grace brings about in our life that makes it irresistible grace. Then we gladly and willingly embrace him as our Savior and Lord and treasure. He brings us all the way to the point of conversion so that we give him all the glory of receiving Christ. So we conclude that the Lord of life gives life. How does it happen? Um, Because I think that is constantly being assaulted, the understanding that the Lord of life gives life by the evangelical Christian culture. And so our next verse that I think is helpful to look at here is, um, let me put this aside, the illustration from Lydia and Philippians and her conversion. So why did she believe? So in Acts 16, 14, this is a really powerful little verse here. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And there are really four aspects that I want to look at there for a person to believe and be saved that are just in that verse encapsulated that. And it seems like every place that Paul preached, of course, that some believed and some did not, right? We see that was a common thing. And how do we understand that some who were dead in their trespasses and sins believed and some did not? And so one answer might be, as we look in uh, Acts 13, they thrust it aside. It says there, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, talking to the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And so I'm going to give you other things that are related to that that I think are similar. Just we'll run through them real quick. So you have uh, several here. Because the message of the gospel was folly to them and they were not able to understand from 1 Corinthians, the mind of the flesh is hostile towards God's. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, Romans 8. Those who hear and reject the gospel hate the light and do not come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. They remain darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And then Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So they suppress the truth. So those are kind of an overview of what we see in Scripture talking about how the rejection of these things work all the way from, from blindness, not able to understand, hostile towards God, hating the light, um, darkened in their understanding. So these are a good clue of what, what we should truly, how we should truly see this. But, so why do some believe, since we're all in this condition of rebelliousness, hardness of heart, dead in our trespass? Every one of us were there at some point, okay? We were all there. The book of Acts, though, gives some light in several different ways, though. One of them would be um, here in Acts 13. Let me make sure. 
where it says, the Gentiles, when Paul preached in Antioch of Pisidia, the Gentiles rejoiced, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Another one. Another insight is why some believe is that God granted repentance when the saints of Jerusalem heard that the Gentiles were responding to the gospel and not just the Jews, they said, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. But I think going back to this other one that we have is the clearest answer is in Acts is that God opens the heart and Lydia is this great example. Why did she believe the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so there's four, there's actually four things in this verse that we need to take note of, of how that happens. So first of all, she paid attention to what was said by Paul, right? Says she was able to pay attention. First, someone must speak the gospel. God doesn't open the eyes of the heart to see nothing. So he opens He allows us to see the glory of Christ in the gospel. And so we must, first of all, speak the gospel. We have to speak the gospel. We don't make the new birth happen when we do that, but we conform our our ways to God's way of doing this. So conforming ourselves is just speaking the gospel. So we have to know the gospel, at least the basics of the gospel. So the point of the new birth is to grant spiritual sight and to look at something, and that's the point of speaking the gospel, so that the unbeliever has something to look at. What is the gospel? I have a, um, an employee that's a key person in my organization, and he's somewhere in the process of coming to the Lord, because he's occasionally asking some questions, and I, haven't, I don't have a lot of personal contact with him all the time, but early on, I made sure that I laid out, because we were talking about church and what his background was. And I said, if you, you know, in going to church, I think he even had a Mormon background at one time, a little bit. And so I said to him, do you know what the gospel is? And he didn't. I mean, he couldn't put it into words. And so I just laid out, well, this is what the gospel is, you know? and laid out the basic points of the gospel. And you may even, you may even use some kind of track that lays those things out. God, God loves the world, and yet we find ourselves in hopelessly in sin, and God has made a provision for us in Christ who died and rose again and took on our sins that we might know God. You know, that's the encapsulated version. But we talked a little bit about those things. And I think that's... That's the, you know, laying that out was what I wanted as a groundwork where he understood the gospel isn't going to church and being a good person and running a good business because we can misrepresent what Christianity is about if it's being a do-gooder. So at some point, they need to see that. And then secondly, it says that the Lord opened her heart. So the speaker of the gospel relies on the Lord. And so we're recognizing that God does the work at that point. God opens the heart. And we are not the main factor that's going to talk people into following Christ. The decisive actor in all these things is God. 
We have a significant role in speaking the gospel, but it's the Lord who is going to do the decisive work. And then thirdly, it says there, he opened her heart. Since the key problem, not believing the gospel, is hardness or closedness of the heart, that's where the Lord does his decisive work. He opens the heart of Lydia in this situation. And drawing from Ezekiel, he takes a heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. And so Peter declares in 2 Corinthians, this sense there, he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have a description of that kind of laid out in the Westminster Confession on effectual calling. Now I'm going to, I'm going to show this to you and This is one of those technical ones you kind of cringe at, but I'm going to kind of just read it slowly so you can soak that in because it's it's so good. Effectual calling. These are the Western Ministers Divines in 16... Does anybody know the the date of uh, the Westminster Confession? 1650s or something? David would know if he was here. Effectual calling. All those whom God has predestined into life, unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually, in other words, to affect something, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation. So he calls them out of there, out of sin and death, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, or, or determining them, or determining that for them they are uh, placed to that which is good, and effectively drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet, yet, so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. That's pretty good. It's pretty hefty. But that, if you understand the concepts there, that's one of the core planks of Reformed theology, and I would say biblical thinking. I, I, I cringe almost when we attribute something to either Calvin or Reformed thinking instead of calling to the attention, this is biblical thinking. This is biblically informed. So the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's, this is the fourth thing. The effect of the Lord opening Lydia's heart is a true spiritual healing, hearing of the gospel, which is that word, pay attention to, which is actually a poor translation of the Greek prosokine, to turn the mind to, to attend to, to be attentive. The work of the Lord does not just help Lydia focus. It brings about faith, and she was granted repentance and faith. So this is what we should pray for. When God does this for many at the same time, what do we call it? 
We call that a revival historically. And boy, do we need that today? We need that today. That's the great need for God to invade and turn hearts. So what's the application? It's not really about whether you should say, I accepted Christ when I was whatever. It's not about saying, you know what, I was on drugs for 30 years and God found me in a bar and saved me and I accepted Christ. It's not about that. It's not about the right terminology. You can use whatever terminology you want. I'm just saying that there's more accurate ways to understand that biblically. So first thing, we need to understand God's hand in our salvation and look at it from the right perspective. So for most of us, that means when we review our own spiritual journey, our own spiritual story of how we came to Christ, we see it from our perspective, don't we? And we see people that God placed in our lives, our parents, friends, pastors, churches that explained or lived out the gospel. And maybe we even prayed a prayer inviting Christ to come forward. We walked an aisle, you know, those things. So we see it from there. And then there's the events that were instrumental um, and maybe persuasive and impactful in your life. Perhaps a sermon or maybe the death of somebody close to you or a crisis or maybe an illness or failures or some kind of hopelessness, some kind of crisis. Maybe it was challenges to your thinking, maybe a logical argument or apologetics or, or a new understanding of truth, maybe fear of death, or even as simple as initially following our parents' faith and finally coming to the point of making it our own. Those are from our perspective of what happened, but from, in all those situations, from a different point of view, God was the one working out his calling in our life, opening our spiritual lives and, and bringing all those, orchestrating all those events. And our hearts were softened and our ability to see at least a glimpse of God's glory began to happen. And the beauty and love of God demonstrated through the death and resurrection of his son. We begin to see those things. And even the people in your life who gave maybe testimony to the gospel, some seemingly random opportunities or to hear the gospel preached or explained in the hearing of the word, ultimately, those weren't random things. We need to see and understand that it was his irresistible grace when we were dead in sin that compelled us to receive and believe receive him as savior, to place our faith in him, to become our follower. And even if we feel like we accepted him, the truth is that he's accepted us and gave us faith to trust him for our salvation and drew us to himself. Secondly, I think our responsibility, the application of this, is to understand our role in the lives of him, of those who don't know him. We need to speak the gospel Faithfully, knowing as people hear the gospel, God is faithful to call them according to his will. It's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to proclaim the gospel. And I think the great scripture for this understanding is in Romans 10. And he's not just talking about preachers. He's talking about all of us. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed 
what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so in covenant worship, the last thing on the agenda is to send out. And maybe we don't push that enough. And, and so when he says in this verse here, how are they to preach unless they are sent? That's what we do as a church. That's what I do right now. You are now ordained to be sent out and tell the gospel. So God uses us in a real sense. We're all preachers, proclaimers. And even though there's nothing wrong with being persuasive, because there's some persuasive people and persuasive, those who seem to have gift of evangelism seem to be very persuasive. But even the, there's nothing wrong with it. God made clear that his proclamation of the gospel or Paul made clear that his proclamation of the gospel came without persuasive and compelling speech. One, ver- more, one more verse I think I have here. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit, of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So our confidence is this. It's the simple witness. It's the declaration of the gospel message that is vital. It's the power of the gospel It's not our compelling and persuasive arguments or explanation of the six days of creation or the existence of God or the nature of the Trinity or even a great explanation of the return of Christ and why I'm not dispensational. It's not those things. As Paul states in one more verse, Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pray together. (coughs) Father, we thank you that salvation, our salvation isn't up to us and the salvation of other people isn't up to us in the sense that we are responsible to change our hearts and change others' hearts You are a change agent in our lives. And for those whom you have called, we pray that there would be an opening of eyes, opening of ears to hear the gospel every time we speak it, every time it's proclaimed. But Lord, we know that you are in control of all these things, and we thank you that we did not somehow have to figure out the truth of the gospel to follow you, that you did those things. We don't understand why some have a hardness of heart still, and we pray that you would bring many more to yourself, but God, we rest in the fact that you are sovereign over all these things, and we can relax, and we can glory in your beautiful and perfect plans. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.